One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate, called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from him among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. 
They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming, in, and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them, because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Amen. Thanks, Joy, very much. Would you keep that passage open? Um, Really good to see you all this morning. We're going to be looking particularly at chapter 4 this morning. Um, So let me pray as we come to look at this together. Heavenly Father, I'm reminded of those words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where we read, If anyone is in Christ, anyone is trusting in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Father, I pray today that through this passage, uh, and as you work in our hearts, you would show us the realities of that truth. Amen. Uh, this, this week, the uh, discipleship group met again. Um, I absolutely love the discipleship group. It's always the highlight of the week. Um, it's just such a great bunch of people, and we meet together uh, most weeks. Uh, we had a really good discussion this week. We did a bit of a Bible study, and then towards the end, when I was just winding down, the questions started coming, and the group started winding up, which was great. And uh, we stayed a bit later than normal. Um, but as a group, we were reflecting on the struggles that we all have in sharing our faith with other people. 
Now, some in the group have been Christians a long, long time. Some have been Christians for a very short amount of time. But I think something that was common for all of us is that actually none of us were saying we're ashamed of what we believe, and that's why we find it difficult. Everybody was saying that uh, we find it difficult because so often it, it feels like a bit of a gear shift talking to people about our faith. You're talking about sport or work or money or the weather. To then somehow talk about Jesus, it just seems unnatural. And, and it's that kind of getting there that people will really struggle with. Have you got the clicker, Wells? Oh, thanks. So that's the struggle that uh, many of the guys were struggling with. Um, and I was just saying, well, actually, we all struggle with that. So I want to encourage us this morning um, from this passage together. If you can... Uh, if you were alive during the time of Billy Graham and his Crusades, it was reckoned that about 80% of the people who came to the Crusades that Billy Graham spoke at were bought by friends. Another stat that I don't think is any characteristic of the Billy Graham era, but people who've um, asked others when they've come to faith in Jesus about their testimony, the stats reckon that on average, a person who comes to put their faith in Jesus has heard the gospel 30 times. Now that tells me two things, and it tells us two things. The first thing is, as those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ seek to share that news with other people, it needs great perseverance. It needs great perseverance. Second thing it tells us is that actually it's a great responsibility that we all have, and we need to be intentional about it. If it's true that for the average person, 30 times they need to hear the gospel, that means 30 times they've got to be invited to something where the gospel is explained, or you've got to have a meaningful conversation with them. That's tough. It's really, really tough. Someone's once quipped, uh, the first Bible a person reads is you. I don't know if you've heard that before. And I guess it's the sentiment that so often, way before anyone will actually open up God's word, they're looking at people who profess faith in Jesus Christ and saying, I'm watching that person. I want to understand why they are the way they are. I think that's for that reason that Paul writes to this young man, Timothy, and he says, watch your life, that's how you live, and watch your doctrine, what you believe, closely. Similarly, I think it's the reason why Peter writes something like this, speaking to Christians scattered all over the ancient world. He said, listen, live good lives. That's not kind of goody-two-shoe lives, that's godly lives, amongst an unbelieving world, that although they accuse you of doing wrong, and we've all got friends who say... Why bother wasting time with all that God stuff? Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good works. That's the life lived in honor of God and give glory to God in heaven. Something about the way that you're living your life is attractive to other people. Well, two weeks ago, we looked at seeing God in his word, the internal light as God illuminates our heart to understand who he is. Last week, we, saw, we were thinking about seeing God in creation, the external light of seeing God in what he has made. And the final one in our little series uh, this week is thinking about seeing God through transformed lives. Now we're going to do a little equation this morning, but you'll be pleased to know that, that it's not going to be a maths equation, because I'm rubbish at maths. It's a word equation. Four things which, if you add them together, give you something. And they're four things we see in our passage. Here's the first thing. An astonishing message. Notice in chapter 4, 1 and 2, uh, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. 
Just think about how provocative that is. Here you've got a bloke who's claiming that he has risen, he will rise from the dead. He has risen from the dead. Claiming he has power over death. You're going to think he's very bad and trying to deceive or completely and utterly mad. Dead people don't rise. Notice as well, he's speaking to the Sadducees. They're part of the Jewish ruling elite. They had quite a lot of power politically. One of the things the Sadducees did not believe in was the resurrection. That's where they argued with the Pharisees. And yet here, Peter and John are proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead. I've got a friend who um, goes down to Hyde Park quite regularly to a place called Speaker's Corner. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's a place historically in London where you can stand on the corner of Hyde Park and you're allowed to address a crowd if you can gather one or just speak to yourself. But you can speak and the idea is that it's a free place where you can, um, orators can come and maybe persuade someone of something they believe. Well, my friend's called Jay and he goes down there often to dialogue with Muslims. And the Muslims hate him because he knows his Bible better than most Christians. He knows his Quran better than most Muslims. And he has these brilliant dialogues with them. And if you watch him, you just go, wow, I could never do that. But he is really provocative, not because he is aggressive, not because he's arrogant, but because the words that he speaks are very provocative. But notice in verse 4, despite the fact that he's saying something provocative, and despite the fact that verse 3, they try and put Peter and John in jail, it says, verse 4, but... Many who heard the message believed, so that the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Just think about the life of Jesus. We often think of Jesus meek and mild. Jesus was incredibly patient, he was incredibly kind, he was full of grace. But he was unbelievably provocative too. He said stuff and it always divided people. Uh, go to Mark chapter 2 he says to a man who's paralysed get up, pick up your mat and walk and everyone's going what? you can't say that but the man gets up but before that he says something even more outrageous what did he said? son your sins are forgiven and the Pharisees were absolutely livid who is this man who can claim he can forgive sins he's claiming to be God it's outrageous And they rightly say, no one can forgive sins but God alone. Uh, You go to John chapter 14, verse 6, that really famous phrase of Jesus, where he says, I am the only way, the truth, and the life. That is seriously provocative. Jesus doesn't leave room for relativism. He doesn't leave room for just believing a religion, they're all the same, they all lead to God. Jesus is divisive. So it is an astonishing message that divides. Notice as well from our passage, it's an astonishing message about an astonishing man. You know, a lot of people think that the Christian faith is primarily a load of rules or a load of morals. And that's what it's all about. It's a kind of set of intellectual beliefs. But far more than all those things, though the Christian faith is intellectually credible, the Christian faith is all about a relationship with a person. It's not just a thing we do on a Sunday. It's the whole of our life. It's about walking in a relationship with someone. Do you notice verse 7? They say, it says, They had Peter and John brought before them, this is the religious leaders, and began to question them, saying, By what power or what name did you do this? I suspect that these religious leaders, it was a kind of a mixture of intrigue. Who is this guy that they're speaking of? Uh, anger, 
Why are they gathering such a crowd? Why are so many people listening to Peter and John? Maybe they think that he's their magic. They perform magic. Maybe they think they're demon-possessed. But then it goes on, verse 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. That's a kind of two words, know this, that comes with a real punch. There's a real confidence in what they're about to say. But where does their confidence come from? Go back to verse 8. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Here are two ordinary people, but their confidence to speak of their faith in Jesus doesn't come from themselves, it comes from God. How many of you, if I said to you, do you find it easy to share your faith, would say, yeah, it's absolutely easy, it comes dead natural? Very, very few. Uh, You might be surprised to hear this, I feel very comfortable standing up in front of a couple of hundred people speaking. I always get nervous talking to people about my faith. It's hard for everyone, but here... The encouragement for us is it doesn't matter your ability, how strong you feel. Peter and John here were empowered by God's spirit. And that is why they were able to say, know this. That's where their confidence came from. And they said, verse 10, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Do you know, we can talk about God. But lots of faiths will talk about God, and it becomes a very generic name, but there's something very specifically powerful in the name of Jesus. Which is why you go back to chapter 3, we saw it twice there, you can look on the screen, it's in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man was commanded to walk. It was by faith in the name of Jesus that this man whom you see and know was made strong. Now to go back to our discipleship group uh, earlier this week, uh, one of the reasons I love the group is because everyone in the group is really honest. And a couple of people in the group really honestly said, but the problem I have is I don't have all the answers to the questions my friends might have. But you know what? Answers aren't always what convinces people. Because, and I've done a lot of explore courses over the years. For every question that someone asks and you give an answer, there's ten more questions. Questions may be used as part of bringing someone to faith as they overcome certain hurdles, but answering questions never brings a person to faith. What brings a person to faith is having an encounter with Jesus Christ. You'll know this famous verse from the book of 1 Peter. In your hearts, revere, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer. And you read that and go, well, there you go. That's contradicting everything you're saying. Be prepared to give an answer. I don't have an answer, so I'm not prepared. But what do you need to be prepared for? To give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. In other words, you don't have to have every answer to every question your friends ask you. You can say, I don't know. But what you do know, if you put your trust in Jesus, is who he is. And you can share something of your story of what he means to you. I just say that to give us all confidence because that is where the power is in speaking about Jesus. I remember uh, a friend of mine who's um, quite an experienced pastor in a big Anglican church in London. The church is evangelist. He speaks everywhere. And he always used to talk when he was training people for evangelism, sharing their faith. 
he always used to say, you need to create a crash. Now, what he didn't mean was create a car crash. He doesn't want us to go in all guns blazing in a conversation, to be arrogant, to not listen, to be rude, to be proud. What does our verse say? Be gentle and respectful. What he meant by create a crash was at some point in a dialogue with someone, as part of perhaps answering some questions, you need to confront the person with who Jesus is. At the end of the day, you can have a thousand questions, but the one that really matters is, who do you say Jesus is? And he always used to challenge us to create a crash, get to Jesus, because that is where the Christian faith will stand or fall. And I don't know if you noticed when in chapter 3 in our reading, here's this man... And Peter says to him, I can't give you silver and gold. And you think, that's the one thing this man needs, to buy some food. But he says, I'll tell you what I can give you. And the great irony is it's something that's worth so much more than gold or silver. He says, I tell you, in the name of Jesus Christ, walk. So going back to our equation, it's an astonishing message. It's about an astonishing man And that astonishing man offers life. If you have a look at verse 12, it says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The whole emphasis in this chapter is about rescue, about salvation, about being saved. I love uh, chapter 3, verse 15. It says, you killed the author of life. And then just a couple of verses later, verse 19, it talks about repenting and turning to God. And verse 26, turning from your wicked ways. Why is this so, so important? You and I will all face a physical death. Many people are scared of death. But coming to know the life that Jesus Christ gives means that we don't need to be scared of death because he gives us a physical life after death. But the life that he offers is more than just physical life. It's also spiritual life. And that is the most important life. I don't know if I've ever put this on the screen. That's a picture of my leg. Uh, I broke my leg um, when I was 22 playing rugby for a club in Oxford. Now you could look at me outwardly and say he looks fit and strong. But inside my leg is held together with Meccano. Inside I am very, very weak. Which is why they had to put a big titanium rod through the bone to hold it together. And it's still in there now. This work had to happen on the inside to fix me on the inside so that I could be strong on the outside. So many of us are strong on the outside, but we desperately need fixing on the inside. And no one can see it, but God can. And he wants to do surgery, not on our leg, but on our heart, changing us from the inside. It's an astonishing message about an astonishing man who offers life. And here's a bit I love about this chapter. He offers life to ordinary people. Do you look at verse 13 of chapter 4? When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. And you go back to Luke chapter 5, they were fishermen. Very skilled at fishing, but pretty uneducated, pretty simple, normal kind of working men. But they were astonished that these normal men were speaking with such authority. So often when a person may look at your life and this is a person who doesn't know Christ and they look at you, ordinary you, who doesn't feel impressive, who doesn't look impressive, perhaps who isn't impressive, so often they'll look at your life and go, I cannot understand him and why he is as he is. 
I can't explain why she is as she is. But I'll tell you something, I cannot deny that there is something different about them. At my previous church, we had an unwritten rule, and I loved it. It was, there are no perfect people allowed. It was never spoken from the front, but it was a phrase that was banded around, and we always used it. And that really picks up uh, the sentiment of Jesus. Remember he said once, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to save the righteous, but sinners. He's not come into the world to rescue people who don't think they need rescuing, who are so self-sufficient because outwardly they're so impressive. They say, I don't need God. He's come to rescue sick people who go, I know I'm broken, I know I'm ordinary, I know I'm not strong, and I need you to rescue me, to transform my heart, to give me a new life. But friends, when you take this extraordinary gospel message about this extraordinary man, Jesus, who offers us life and it comes to ordinary people, what you get is transformed lives. And that is the vision of our church, to see lives transformed by Christ. Just as we come to a close, have a look down at verse 18. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking of what we have seen and heard. Back in chapter 3, they spoke about these people, religious leaders, who had killed the author of life, but whom God had raised to life. And they then declared, we are witnesses of these things. We were there. We saw it. It was so life-changing, we had to share it. And here, as Peter and John defiantly say, we cannot help speaking of what we have seen and heard. No doubt they're terrified. No doubt they haven't got all the answers. No doubt they feel ordinary. They're fishermen. They're not orators. But they're so overcome with this gospel message. They just said, I can't help but speak. And by doing that, they're fulfilling exactly the words of Jesus back in chapter 1 of Acts. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. In other words, you who've seen and heard will be my witnesses and you'll be sent out to speak of me. And when you speak of me, you won't be able to, to hold back speaking of what you have seen and heard. And friends, when we speak of what we've seen and heard, in all our weakness, with all the mistakes that we'll make, people will see a difference in us. They will see Jesus in us. That's God's promise. And he will give us the strength to do what he has called us to do. I suspect that if most people in this room came and joined our discipleship group last Wednesday, you'd have all been the same as the people in the discipleship group. And I was there too. I feel weak. I can't always do it. I don't have all the answers. I'm ordinary. But I know Jesus Christ and I love him. And so do you. And that is why you can speak of him to other people. Do you know there is no such thing as a boring testimony? None of you have a boring testimony. I'll tell you why. 
If you were rescued from a life of addiction to alcohol or drugs and miraculously transformed by Jesus, or if you grew up in a Christian home and you can't even remember the day you put your trust in Jesus, but the point is today you are trusting in him, both are miracles. One is not more impressive than the other. Your story is your story which God has given to you. And he doesn't want you to have someone else's story. He wants you to have your story and to share that story with other people. So friends, as we come to a close of this little mini-series, let's have confidence. We see God through his word. We can see God through his creation. And we can see God through transformed lives. Amen.